quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. Today, we're launching a new series focused on the fundamentals of multifamily investing with our good friend, Matt Faircloth. I'll let him tell you all about it in just a moment. But first, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by BAM Capital, a trusted multifamily syndicator that has never missed a preferred payment and never lost an LP's investment. To learn more about investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com or click the link in the show notes. And with that, I'll let Matt Faircloth take it from here. Without good asset management, all you have is potential energy. You got a deal. You got a good business plan and you got plenty of money, but all that, as we've seen, could turn into nothing. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hey, Best Ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. Matt Faircloth here. You might know me from the Bigger Pockets podcast, from the Bigger Pockets Multifamily Bootcamp, or from our company, the DeRosa Group. I am super excited that DeRosa Group is going to be contributing to the best ever podcast here with our new program called The Fundamentals of Multifamily Investing. In this short series that we've created for the best ever audience, we're going to be talking all things multifamily. So whether you're a multifamily passive investor or a multifamily operator, you'll be getting all kinds of tips and tricks that you can bring to your multifamily investing business each episode. Everything from forming investor relationships, finding markets, to finding deals, to bringing those deals to fruition. All those things are going to be presented in this series that we're super excited to be presenting to you today. So let's get started. All right, guys, let's get into it, man. Uh, Justin Fraser and Hervé Francois, my other two amigos. How are you guys doing? So happy to be here. Excited to dig in on the core four multifamily dream team. Let's go. Yeah. Hervé, how are you today? I'm doing great, man. Pumped up Friday. I'm ready to go. I'm ready excited. to go, too. Yeah, excited. this is an exciting conversation we're going to have, and I'm grateful to be here with you guys doing it. And you guys are part of the core team of DeRosa, and it's kind of leads into the conversation that we're going to have today, the level of camaraderie that I have with you guys, and just the model of having that core four in multifamily, right? So let's start the conversation by doing a little history lesson, a little rewind to back in the day when I was trying to run a budding, growing real estate operation myself with just me, and, and sometimes my lovely wife Liz helping me. And uh, over time, I realized that they were part of the real estate investing tasks, duties, functions that you got to do in real estate investing that I just didn't like doing. And I know you guys can relate to that, right, Justin and Hervé? There's parts of this business that let's just own that are not really our core strength. There's a book out, multiple books out by a guy named Dan Sullivan who founded Strategic Coach. And he talks about things that you procrastinate on. And model is that if you procrastinate on something, it probably means you're not supposed to be doing it. And I found that I would procrastinate on things in real estate investing like underwriting. It's not really my jam. I tried it. And I would do deals that I had underwritten, and, and sometimes I would miss things in the underwriting, or I would have to muddle through it, let's say. But if you want to really grow and expand a business, you shouldn't be muddling through in anything. What are you guys' thoughts on that? What's some parts of real estate investing? I know you guys 
all operated in a silo before we got together, right? So what are some parts of the real estate investing thing that we all know real estate investors have to do, but are really not your core strength? And the world tells us that we're supposed to do these things no matter what. We're supposed to get good at it, figure it out, right? How about, what do you guys think? Well, I think when you start off maybe in single family is where a lot of people start. You kind of do everything, right? Maybe small multifamily, you're, you're doing it all. But the key for me is that doesn't really scale up. If you're going to try to go buy 50, 100 units, all of a sudden everything gets incredibly more complex. And so the whole act of finding the deal can be its own effort, underwriting the deal, the raising capital side of things, and then the asset management and ongoing management of the property. These are all things that we've identified as separate superpowers that really someone can't be great at all of them. Someone doesn't get their energy from all of them. No one is an expert in all of them. So what you might be able to swing by with and understand and, and kind of limp along on a smaller property as you get larger, as you start to build a business, it's going to be pretty clear that you can't do all the things all the time. Yeah. And no business owner does right. everything. Show me one business owner that's got a successful business that, that has any level of sophistication and that owner's doing all of it. And as your small business, you know, buying a couple of singles and maybe super small multifamilies here and there, you're right. You do have to do it all. Because you don't have the luxury of enough income or enough revenue to hire staff or to partner up with people. But as you scale into multifamily, there's things that you probably ought to be giving off your plate. So, Irve, when you first got in, what were some parts of this business that just didn't speak to you, man? Like, they're just like, it's like, I can't, I know I'm supposed to do this stuff, but I'm not good at it. Like, for me, it was underwriting. Right. Any, any part of the business that just didn't really jam with you either? Yeah, I would have to say, it's a great question, man. I would have to say on the asset management part, my goodness, I was overwhelmed. I said, I done stepped into it. And I then stepped into something soft. What is going on over here? I was overwhelmed. I was flipping a house here in New Jersey. I believe that I bought it right now. And I really believe that I did. And I think I did a good job on the numbers in regards to how much CapEx that this property needs in order to go ahead and beautify it. And of course, the ARV and everything else like that. And I severely underestimated my CapEx numbers <laughs> because... I just kept, it was, it was another update and another renovation and another renovation. We got to do the cabinets, you know, this kind of countertop. So I had no systems in place. I really had no organization. I was just buying things off the shelf and seeing if it would fit and so on and so forth. And so I realized after that one, and I also had done a condo conversion in Washington, D.C. That was a little bit better because I had learned from so many of the mistakes from the first flip that I had done that I said, man, I need to have not only systems and processes in place, but if I'm going to continue to do this, I can't do it by myself. Oh, no, 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 no. I need to have some teammates. I need to have some partners. And that really is what spurred me to start going to the local RIA meetings yeah. not, not far from where I live. Just to potentially and, you, and you met a people. You met me. And then there were, <laughs> and, and here we are, right? So, but the, the, the point of this conversation and, and they've continued conversations because guys, guess what? Listeners, we're going to be doing a lot more of this here on the best ever podcast and having conversations about really people living into their core strengths of multifamily investing so that they can scale. Cause you can probably do as Hervé did. You can get by in your business. If you do things you're not great at, if you do things that are not your core strength or you, your unique ability, whatever you want to call it. But you're not going to flourish. You're not going to grow. You're not going to 10x your business until you can really step into what your strength is in this. So that's where we're going to go in this conversation and in other episodes that you guys got to stay tuned for. So let's delve in a little bit more with a little bit of our personal stories on how we evolved into where we are now. So 
I, as I said, was not a great underwriter. And so I was able to meet a great underwriter and he was able to help us analyze opportunities as they showed up. And he analyzed an opportunity that was a big fish. It was a 198 unit apartment building in North Carolina. And again, it was myself and my wife, and we'd raised a reasonable amount of capital because that was something I was getting pretty good at was raising capital for deals. That was my core strength in raising money. And we'll get into that in a second. But I had met someone who was an analyst by trade and by his wiring. And so he was able to find an opportunity in North Carolina. And he was someone that we call in the superpower assessment that we have called the brain, which is the analyst. They take an opportunity. They put the deal on the headlock until a business plan comes out. And that business plan is the price you got to buy it for. Maybe rent increases you're going to do if that's part of the plan. The renovations you're going to make to the property, what the debt structure looks like, all of it. And everything that goes into that deal that's going to yield success. The script, it's the roadmap, it's all of it. And this person created that for us for this 198 unit deal. I went out and raised all the money for that property and we put it under contract and closed on it. And it was a phenomenal journey to get it under ownership. But then we owned it and now it's, it's a deal that was starting to get a little squirrely and that a, a plan is one thing, but reality is very different. And fast forward to Justin, who had some extra time on his hands and joined me on a trip to North Carolina. And so Justin, I've told my side of the story many times. But I'd love to hear your side. I haven't heard your side of it enough. So you and I are in North Carolina, and, and you take it from there. As we're in this in this property, it's like 50% occupied, middle of a turn. And it's just it's just a red hot mess all over the place. And then you take it from there. Yeah. So one thing I do want to say to everybody is I had I'll be very open. I had gotten laid off three months prior. So I wasn't gonna go there, but I, you went I, there, so you I, go I there. You know what? I'm proud of it at this point. <laughs> Probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Really. Part of the journey. Part and so. I had some time on my hands and Matt was talking about this property that, that he was struggling with and the managers weren't doing the things they were supposed to be doing and the contractors were giving him a hard time. And so I said, look, you know what? I've got time. We're both in New Jersey. I'll drive you. Hop in the back seat. Take your phone calls. I got nothing else to do. Let me drive you down to North Carolina. Let's see what happens. I came from a project management background. It was software, managing people, budgets, timelines to, to get things done. So we hopped on down there. And by the way, I did have a portfolio and I had syndicated a 40 unit and really struggled with underwriting, struggled with capital raising, but asset management. You did it all yourself. Yeah, I did it by myself. But now here's an opportunity where I can come add some value to a team. Value one was, hey, I got nothing going on. Let me drive you. Value two is we get there and let's see what we can do. And so Matt had some meetings that he had to take care of with some leadership people in the management company. He had some other contacts in the market that he was going to meet with. And the whole way down, he was just describing some of the challenges around contractors, literally a dude with a, literally a shoebox of receipts. So stereotypical, but like this contractor had no system, no organization, and he didn't know what he owed. He was making up dollar numbers on the spot as for what we owed him, and, and there was really no rhyme or reason to it. So there was a big mess there that the property manager wasn't adequately handling. And so Matt was you know, kind of struggling with how do I get to a real number? Maybe we just make up a number with this contractor. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was the maintenance team and coordinating the, the renovations across the property. We weren't quite sure what was renovated. We weren't sure what was occupied. We weren't sure what was in progress, where the materials were. So just needed a better insight into what was actually happening on the ground. 
So I took those two kind of tasks and, and jumped right in. So while Matt went off and had the meetings he had to have, I sat down with that contractor and I said, okay, show me your shoebox. And we went through it. And then he's saying, well, I think I bought these materials and, and I think it's for this unit. And I said, oh, okay, back up. Let's go back to the last time you were paid. What units was that for? And everything from that point on, let's go out in the property. Let's go walk the units. Let's see if those units are done. And if they're done, I can pay you for them. You got the invoice. Let's make the invoice. This is the price we agreed. And so just very systematically going through this process of understanding what units were renovated, what still had to be done, what the contractor had done. And look, that's not something we ever recommend that you're going to have to do now. The property management should be handling that, but there was a deficiency there. And so that's something that I was able to do, bring some to my organization and really talk the same language with the contractor, get into it and work to a solution. So we spent the whole day together, walking property, sweating in the North Carolina sun in the summer and just trying to figure this out. So here, come back at the end of the day, and I've got a clean list of invoices. I literally helped the man write his invoices in Microsoft Word, but we made the invoices. We agreed that this was the scope, that this was the price, this was fair, this was done. Here's the schedule for the next four, six, eight weeks for what he's going to work on. And we all came back with a solid understanding. And so then Matt and I got back together at the end of the night. And so here's everything we did. Here's the status of your property. Here's what's going on. And I think that we sort of had this moment of realization where Matt is great at raising money and attracting attention. And I was really great at handling the details, getting into it and building that plan and organizing the people. So just that night, we literally had a bourbon, had a conversation and said, I don't know where this is going, but there might be something here. Is there a way you can come in? The fast forward. And in one day. Justin was able to do more than I could have done had I moved down there for a week. Because of his systematic approach, perhaps more attention, not perhaps, let's just say this is more attention to detail than what I was able to do, right? Because I tend to not be as detail-oriented as Justin is. And also willingness to be a little more diligent and follow through on things like, for example, there's a bunch of dumpsters overflowing on the site. And Justin just called up the dumpster company, talked them through it patiently and said, this isn't right. You guys know this isn't right. Let's work this out. And they were out there the next day and cleaned it all up and gave us a credit as well. And I don't think I would have been able to handle it as pragmatically and calmly as he did. And so we decided, hey, this is working. So let's figure this out. Justin was free agent. And I went to our partner that had underwritten the deal. And I said, we need to make room for this guy to come in and help us because this is the missing link of the puzzle as of right now. So now you got a capital raiser guy handling investor relations. You've got a underwriter that produced the business plan is also running some financial analysis. And you've got somebody who's willing to be boots on the ground implementation side of that plan. And it worked well on that deal. Then fast forward to that RIA meeting that Hervé was talking about where we got into talking a bit and Hervé was also looking to expand into real estate and had 20 years worth of Wall Street experience in analyzing opportunities and looking at different data metrics and things like that on Wall Street, then wanted to take a lot of those skill sets to real estate. And I remember Hervé, he said, well, where are you guys investing? Tell me a bit more about your business. And I said, the market we've chosen is the Carolinas. And Hervé, what'd you say? I said, well, that's not a real market. The whole state of North and South Carolina, and I think it might have been Kentucky. That he we were in Kentucky too, when I mentioned. Yeah, but, but a state is not yeah, a market. Was really one of the realizations that you can't do business in a state, and I'm talking to listeners too. So if you guys are running around talking about how, yeah, we're investing in Texas, I get that. I'm sure you are, but that's not an MSA in itself. There are micro markets in each state that you guys need to be focusing on. So, Irvi, your thoughts there. Yeah, listen, I think uh, similar to uh, Justin, I too had gotten laid off from my corporate job 
but it was the best thing that had happened to me. Kind of saw it coming. Knew I wanted to get into real estate, but just didn't have the time with all the hours working on the street and whatnot. Analyzing technology stocks and talking to portfolio managers, but I had a lot of, I thought, skill sets that would be transferable to the real estate side. And then, like you said, met you and Justin both at our local RIA meeting. Justin was the president of the RIA meeting at the time, and that was kind of the mayor going around and shaking hands and kissing babies and things like that. So it, it was an opportunity really for me to meet people, meeting these guys, and then really doing a little deep dive as to. Where does DeRosa end? And then once one of your former partners had shown me a list, um, I think on your Google Drive, of offering memorandums that you guys were receiving from brokers, they mm -hmm. were from all over the country. I was looking at offering memorandums from different parts of California, Arkansas. You, had, you guys were looking at stuff in Ohio. You were looking at stuff in Tennessee. You were looking at stuff. We were buying on cap rate. This is the mistake yeah, you hear right. a lot of investors do, Hervé, is that they look at the United yeah. States and they say, okay, where can I achieve the highest cap rate and get the best return on cash on cash or get the best deal? And you're just kind of like just right. throwing a fish hook into the ocean and hoping something bites. And you can right. go on right. looking at right now and say, okay, show me anything that's trading at right. a eight or nine cap. And I'm sure you'll find something, but you'll know right. nothing about that market. And you're just buying on yeah. yield, which is not a way to build a business. You might catch lightning in a bottle and get a good deal, and you likely won't, but you'll certainly not be able to build a business around that. Right, 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 right. No, absolutely. And I think, like anything else, you kind of start at the top of the funnel, and then yeah. you go ahead and you drill down. And then the drilling down is like, okay, what is going to define an attractive market for us? We know maybe not exactly where we want to be, but we know what defines an attractive market for us. And then we start talking about those metrics and listing those metrics. Now that we've defined those metrics, where do we go on the internet to go ahead and find that data? And so we start talking about population growth, then job growth, and the different industries that drive the economy in a particular market. Obviously, things like crime in schools and whatnot. And then you look at cap rate, want to make sure you're in a market that has a good amount of property managers and so on and so forth. So. Once we really started drilling down, we took certainly our proximity to that market into consideration because we wanted to make sure that we could drive to that market and check out the properties, start developing relationships with the commercial brokers and the property managers in that particular market. So that's where the Carolinas really, really started to sprout up for us. And then, of course, within the Carolinas, we looked at different cities within the Carolinas. A lot of folks know us that we prefer and we are more attracted to the yeah. secondary cities in a state versus a primary large metro cities in a state because it's not as competitive, but just as attractive. And that's, that's the choice we right? made. So right? yeah, and, and I'm not saying, I, I didn't want to say here on the show that you got to choose a tertiary, you got to choose secondary because I've even had good friends of mine that are other operators that have their reasons why you want to buy in top tier markets. And obviously it's because the cap rate's lower. Right. Yeah, there is more competition, but guess what that does? That also creates a lot more buyers when you're trying to sell. And it also rising tide raises right. all boats right. kind of thing. But let's back up. Let's go through each of the superpowers in the core four real quick and maybe talk about what those models are, maybe some mistakes that people made there when they're operating wrongly or just when they're maybe in the wrong seat in those superpowers, right? So obviously nothing happens without somebody hunting a market and producing the opportunities. So talking about the hunter, 
the hunter is the person on your team, listeners, that could be you, but it's the person that you need to either partner up with or the seat you need to be in, in finding that market that everybody's talking about. Finding the market in the United States, be that for us, Winston-Salem, Lexington, Kentucky, other markets we've looked at or wherever, wherever it is, Dallas, Texas, Tampa, Florida, wherever you got. And we're not saying one market's better than another. You as the operator, you as your hunter need to choose that market as your sandbox and then delve in and collect the data into that market. Irvay, what are the key components that you think that are necessary to be a successful hunter to someone that's looking to rise up in this business? Well, once you've identified the metrics that outline an attractive well, market before for you, you right? That what, metrics, what are the metrics? I know there's some data that we got. There's important, like say like the right. top five things that we look at a market for, but what are the metrics that one of our students shows up to us and wants to talk about a new market? You've got, I've seen you do this. You've got immediate questions you're going to commit that are going to like, evaluate that market. So what's the top couple of things you need to know about a market to determine whether it's a good place to invest or not? I'm going to take a look. I'm going to ask that student. Okay, hey, listen, what's the population? What is the job market looking like in the job growth? What are the different industries that drive that economy? Is this a market that has a university, a healthcare system? We really like those kind of industries. Obviously, there's some manufacturing. Amazon seems to be putting distribution warehouses everywhere or fulfillment warehouses everywhere and things like that, hotel accommodations. At least that it's spread out that not one particular industry is more than 20% of mm. the economy for that particular city, right? So that's why you're not going to see us in cities that are dominated by tourism and hotel or just manufacturing, for example, right? Because we know that a lot of those industries are cyclical, right? And we're going through cyclicality in our yeah. economy right now. So you don't want to get caught just in a city dominated by one particular industry and then every, you, you want to have that one industry you know? and this is your Wall Street talking, right? You don't want to have that one industry change or be affected by something in a market that you can't control and have that industry have lots of layoffs or lots of this, lots of that. And that's going to pull that geographic right. market down. Right, right, right. And the thing is, when we talk to our students, and as you guys know, we want to make sure that they're comfortable in the market that they're going to, that once they've identified these markets, particularly it's a market that they can travel to and, and check out these properties, right? Now it's time to go ahead and start developing relationships with brokers that have the listings in the market. And that's going to take time. That's not going to happen overnight. And we talk about it a lot is that you want to put together a real estate resume. You want to have your acquisition criteria. And that's what you want to pitch. That's what you want to bring forward to those brokers in that city now that you've decided that you're going to invest. I'm looking for a 10-unit property that was built in the 1980s or in the 1990s, something like that that I perhaps it's a class C, class B, so I have to go ahead and put in some renovation money on the interior and the exterior. I have equity sources lined up, and if you can help me find a property like this, I can move quickly. I can go ahead and, and pull the trigger or whatnot, right? So you build it because it can seem very overwhelming to folks. And I think sometimes folks, they just want to go into a market and just start looking at properties. Be a little bit more targeted, be a little bit more specific, with those metrics, and then how are you going to go ahead and start yep. reaching out? To and just a, just a bottom line, guys, the biggest mistake that I've seen people that are hunting in markets make is they rely on the internet to bring them a deal. We are not in that world anymore where the internet's going to bring you anything with regards to real estate investing. Your relationships, you drilling into a specific market and saying, I'm going to pick this market. 
and I'm going to go into that market and build relationships with the brokers. I'm going to get to know the key players in that market, and I'm going to really drill in to that market and those relationships. And when a deal comes out, I want to be the first to know about it. You will never be the first to know about anything if you're only relying on the internet to bring you opportunities. Once it's on the internet, everybody knows about it. On the broker's website, on LoopNet, on wherever it is. If you get to know that broker direct, that broker is going to bring that opportunity to you first. They're going to call you up and say, hey, Irve, I got something coming on in a couple of days. Do you want to get first look at it? I cannot tell you, Irve, how many times we've gotten that phone call because we don't invest in 30 markets in the United States. We're very, very market specific in our market investments. Matt, not everybody gets their energy. I was going to give it to you anyway, Justin. No, I was going to say not everyone gets their energy from that. Not everyone loves dialing the phones and building those relationships with the broker. And so, Irve, let's talk just briefly about the types of characteristics and traits that make a good hunter. Because someone who's sort of meek and shy and unwilling to face rejection, probably not going to work out as a great hunter, right? They don't want to get told no 30 times and wait to to get to a yes. It's really just about having that yeah. skin enough and maybe having a background in sales that you know that if you ask for something enough, you're eventually going to get a yes. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Justin, I mean, you put a good point. Listen, I've been in a lot of bars in my life where, you know, I face rejections, you know. All so of life, right? you kind of knew <laughs> that was preparing you for right? that. Preparing <laughs> you for your you know, memories. Great things. So you realize that. This is not going to happen overnight. You have to build. Maybe it's not necessarily rejection where a broker says, no, I'm not going to do business with you or no, I'm not going to show you anything. But it's that the constant follow-up with the phone calls, with the emails in a professional manner, not in a pestering manner or, or stalking manner by any stretch, but definitely just following up and following up and showing them that acquisition criteria. So from a characteristic standpoint, Justin, I believe that you need to be open. You need to be out there. You need to be extroverted. You need to have a lot of self-confidence and you certainly need to be prepared. The more prepared that you are in starting the conversations with those brokers, sounding professional, you know the real estate lingo and the terms, the better off you're going to be in them being receptive to you and wanting to stay in front of you. And Justin, as you know, and Matt, you as well, we now have brokers calling us up proactively. Hey guys, DeRosa, we have a deal here. We have a deal there because they know of us. They know what we're looking for. They definitely know our acquisition criteria. We don't have brokers calling us on a class A property that was built in 2021 because they know that's not what we're looking for. But they certainly call us on a class C in a mid-sized market or city in the Carolinas somewhere because they know that fits our bill. So certainly a lot of self-determination, a lot of self-confidence, kind of like a no-quit attitude. And It does. Just to sum it up here, guys, for the hunter. Opportunity or just willingness to pull down data. Those are part of that superpower. Willingness to analyze data to determine the right market to get into. Seeing the metrics, maybe seeing things that haven't come to fruition yet. Irve saw that Winston-Salem, one of our markets, had all the data that it was going to pop in the right direction. He chose that, drilled in, used his selling skills and relationship building skills to build a long-term broker relationship. So if you believe you are a hunter, if you believe that is your superpower, then you got to have that combination of willingness to read the tea leaves a little bit and say, okay, guys, I think this is where the hockey puck's going. I think this market, wherever it is, Topeka, Kansas, Albuquerque, New Mexico, whatever you got, that market is the next thing. That's going to be the next place that it's going to be. If you're investing in a market that's already popped, you're likely not going to get a lot of the upside that you would if you pulled down the real data and analyzed it and then built those relationships in the market afterwards. That is the hunter, guys. Now, moving on. Once we got a deal, back in my olden days, a deal would show up and I would go and muddle my way through analysis on my own. 
and go pull out a handy dandy Excel spreadsheet that I made that was blank when I opened it up. And I would try and muddle my way through analyzing the opportunity. That is not the way more sophisticated operations go. It's certainly the way you can do it in single family and small multi. But if you're looking to scale into bigger multifamily operations and 10 extra multifamily businesses, we have at DeRosa. The way you need to do it is by bringing in, and the technical term for this is analyst, underwriter, that kind of thing. But we like to think about it more with regards to the personality traits and the skill set that it takes to be this person. So we call this person the brain. Just a, and I get you're not the brain on our team, but we've got brains on our team. We've worked with a lot of folks that are brains, so a lot of our students are brains as well. So tell me more about what it takes to be a successful brain. Take that deal that the hunter comes up with and to take it and put it in the oven and bake it out till a business plan comes out. And I want to be clear that you don't have to always have a partner who is a brain. We have had partners who take that brain role in the past. Right now, that's an employee of ours, and that is A-OK with us. You do need somebody that gets their energy from sitting behind a spreadsheet and spending time working the numbers. Maybe they've got co-star access. Maybe they know how to look at rent comps. They know how to look at asking the right questions from maybe what's a classic unit to a renovated unit. What kind of rent bumps are we getting? What are the market trends, market occupancy rates, all the data coming from that hunter and they're synthesizing it and they're putting it into the spreadsheet. And you know a brain. A brain is that person that just gets their energy from being behind that spreadsheet. They may not be super outgoing. They may not want to be at the front of the room waving their hands and raising money, and they probably don't have their own podcast, and they probably don't have their own YouTube channel, but they're super smart. You know those people. You know those people that are in your network. Maybe that's you that just gets that energy from putting the input to that spreadsheet and seeing how it works together and what comes out of the other end. So the best brains that we've worked with are super analytical but they know how to manipulate that spreadsheet and the business plan in a way that says, oh, maybe if we got different kind of debt on this deal, or maybe if we changed our pace of renovations, or maybe if we changed and increased the scope, but now we got a higher rent. They're able to play with all the different factors that go into that underwriting model, all these different levers in the spreadsheet to figure out what's the best return for the investors, the highest and best use of that property. And so we love our brains who are not just data in, data out, but can actually manipulate that spreadsheet, think creatively about the different inputs and how they work together to form that plan. Now, the brain doesn't do that in isolation because they're getting market data from their hunter. They're getting CapEx information from the hammer and the people that are on the ground. So it's comprehensive and includes everybody on the team. But at the end of the day, they're the ones that own that spreadsheet. They own the different inputs and they're going to come back to the team and say, here's how we get the highest and best use. We go in heavy on the renovations. We do it fast. We do X, Y, and Z. If we can hit these rents, this is the best use. And then the whole rest of the team can get behind that plan and march forward. You know, that affects the capital raise, that affects the CapEx plan, and everything else moving forward for the rest of the project. So bringing it home, guys, it's probably one of the most easiest persons to identify on a team. You either love Excel or you don't, right? Either are able to sit in front of a spreadsheet for three, four hours and stay on something until it starts to make fiscal sense, or you don't. Not me. My eyes would cross and I'd need a nap in that four hours as well myself if that were me doing it. But there are people listening right now that I wish I could just analyze deals and work the numbers on something. I can't imagine somebody saying this in in my brain, right, (laughs) to myself, but I wish I didn't have to talk to people as much because there are some times that 
I get energized by interacting with people, but there are people that actually get drained yep. by interacting and relating to people. And that's okay. You're either introvert and extrovert. And so if people interactions are something you know you got to do, it's not that you don't want to talk to anybody. It's just that it's something that you have to put more thought and effort into versus just sitting by yourself and working a spreadsheet and being in your quiet. If that speaks to you, maybe you could be the brain. One last thing, Justin, is I almost view the brain in some ways on a effective multifamily team to be a good detective. They find like, well, and something doesn't seem to be right here. Let me delve into this and figure it out. Oh, wait a minute. These are the wrong comps. Or wait a minute. The real estate taxes are going to go up in a year. They discover these things by doing diligent detective work. And they're also very patient and willing enough to spend some time doing the detective work enough to where the right answers come up. Absolutely. That detective work is so, so key. So, Irvi, you work closely with the brain on our team. As Justin said, is an employee, and there's sometimes this person's a partner. They don't have to be an employee. And I would submit to you guys that you don't have to have any of these folks as partners, but they need to be on your team somehow. And most companies start out with one person typically sitting in two of these superpower seats, but a more effective team as you Absolutely. guys grow and scale and become more and more complex and build a larger and larger business, it's going to make sense for you to have a individual and almost like a company silo in each of these four different directions we're going to cover for you guys. So we've covered the hunter. We've covered the brain. Now, Irvin, we got a deal. I got a business plan. Now we've got something. Then we go to where? We need to, we we need to get the money, money, right? We got to raise some money. Uh, we got to get some money. We got to raise some money. Absolutely. One thing I was going to add on, on top of what Justin said, one of the great things I love about the analysis of a deal is once the brain on your team has finished doing his or her analysis, and then we go ahead and we bring in our asset manager, Justin, to go ahead and help us on how much CapEx do you think that this property is going to need after he finished touring the property and so on and so forth. We make adjustments to CapEx. We make adjustments to rent growth. We do what we can to try to make this deal work. doesn't always work. Sometimes deals don't work, but the inputs on making a deal work is coming from truly three different areas, if you will. The areas of market, the areas of asset management, and the area of underwriting, and pretty much the returns. We start talking about cash on cash and so on and so forth. So a deal could work because the market is that great, but it could also work if the market's not all that great and everything's like that. The deal could work because the amount of CapEx that we need to put in it is going to be able to go ahead and generate a certain amount of rent upside that the returns look really, really well. And then, of course, the deal can work on how the brain and the, our analyst, if you will, is going ahead and analyzing the deal and some of the loan quotes that we might be putting into the deal. So things do wind up coming together. Yes, we work in our independent silos, but then the team comes together. And Matt, to your point, we didn't always have a brain as a full-time employee, at one point, we were even outsourcing that function mm -hmm. to a third party, if you will, to go ahead and analyze deals for us and things like that. But at some point, the hunter, the hammer, the brain, they all come together to work on that deal to yep. see, hey, is this something that we can go forward with or not? And then if so, yeah, time <laughs> to go ahead money. and so then, talk to the money man. The money side of our company, that is the next superpower we're going to discuss here, guys, is the money. And once a deal has been found, 
and it's been underwritten and analyzed. And as Irvay said, the asset management slash hammer team get a chance to take a look at it and say, okay, likely it's the asset manager that walks the site because they're the one that's going to have to actually be the boots on the ground and, and run the asset and bring it to fruition. So if we find something that we like, it actually goes to the hammer, which we'll talk about in a second, to make sure that the implementation side of the business plan makes sense, make sure that the renovations are going to work, make sure that the rent bumps are going to hit, and make sure that we're going to get there. But then all that gets like an all call. If you can kind of picture like everybody kind of sitting in a NASA and, and missing control, go flight, ready for launch. And the money looks at the underwriting that the brain has produced and says, okay, will our investors be interested in something like this? Obviously, we've already gone there with the market because if you do a good job under market, as we'll talk about during the market deep dive episode that's coming up down the pipeline for you guys, you should be investing over and over again in a market. So your investors should already be primed that that market's something that you're going to be bringing. But looking at the cash on cash returns, looking at the financial structure, does this meet what we believe our investors are going to be excited about? So the money looks at that and says, okay, that dog will hunt. I think I can make this work. I'm going to put it out to our market. This way you put a little bit of a marketing sauce on it to say, okay, how can I present this deal in its best light? How can I get this out to the market properly? And if you're a very good money provider for your business or for your deals, you've already got a book of investors lined up that are going to be super excited for opportunities you guys are going to provide. And that money's job is to maintain those investor relationships, keep them eager and willing through newsletters, through perhaps social media feeds, perhaps through regular communications, and even just one-on-one -on -one phone calls with investors. Just say, you know, we're going to be coming up with something soon. And doing those outreaches with investors to keep them ready for an opportunity as you come up with them. So then that deal shows up. And you're going to do the webinars. You're going to go and do the hard work. Or as Irvay says, breaking the rocks in the hot sun. Because Irvay's worked on the money team as well to help raise as well. And to help raise capital from investors. Then you're going to go and make those phone calls and push through to get the capital in, the equity into the deal to get it to closing. The money's, if there needs to be key principle conversations on who's got the balance sheet that we need to get this deal closed, who's got the liquidity we need to get this deal closed or to get us approved by a loan, the money is going to have those conversations. If you need to bring in key principal partners, they're going to find those. And whatever else is needed from a dollar and cent standpoint to get the deal to the table, the money really in essence, owns, I love the concept of ownership. The ownership doesn't always mean doing, but the money owns those conversations around what it's going to take to get the dollars and cents to the table to get the deal closed. And then guys, once the deal is closed, the money's then going to maintain investor relationships because the last thing you want to do is to go close a deal and say, okay, bye investors, I'll call you in five years when the profit's ready for you guys to come get, bye. No, investors want to know where the, how things are going. They're going to want to get those investor updates that are likely produced by your asset management team and then sent out in a good light, in investor-facing language that they can easily digest and understand, and maybe some charts and graphs, even better if you want to go there, to show investors and give them that comfort level that their money's in good hands. That's all on the money side. So I could go on and on about what it takes what makes a good, for this. What makes a what good money, man, briefly, Matt. Yeah. But what are some brief personality traits? You said already, maybe likes being in the room, maybe has a social media platform. If you guys meet some of those things, if you are extroverted, briefly, any other skill sets that you guys want to toss out that somebody listening may need to hear if they want to identify themselves to be the money as a rising money provider for their own real estate operation. Well, I think it comes down to know, like, and trust. 
I'm sure a lot of people have heard that, but knowing through the social media, through maybe writing a book, through having a platform, doing podcasts, but then they have to like you. And that's kind of an underrated aspect of it. But if you don't yeah. like somebody, you're probably not going to give them money. So Matt leading our capital team is super personable and everybody just likes him, right? It's hard not to like Matt. And so whether you're just watching him on YouTube oh, you. or see here in a oh, podcast shit. or something else, you probably <laughs> like Matt. And look, if you don't, you probably don't invest with us and that's okay. No, it's but okay. they have to trust you. And so they have to trust that you are going to do right by them, that you're going to be a good steward of their investment and do what you said you were going to do. And that can come from track record. That can come from any other aspect that you can show, regular updates, whatever it is, to show I am doing the right thing. You can trust me that we're taking this very seriously. And you can trust me that I'm going to do the best I can with your money so that we can all be successful. And so if they can know, like, and trust you, then they're likely to invest with you. Absolutely. The, the money in a lot of ways is like a magnet for your business, yep. guys. It is the means to attract eyeballs to your company. Herbe, you've done plenty of capital raising on the Duro Society. And just one pin mark I want to put out there. If you guys are in a situation, you guys as in the listeners, are in a situation where you don't have the four seats all full, you need to have one person sitting in two seats, a very regular arrangement that happens is the brain and the hammer of the same person and the money and the hunter are the same person. So Irvi and I are actually very similar in a lot of ways in personality types. We're good closers. We're good, likable salespeople type of folks. So Irvi, in your experience in raising capital, what are some key facets that you think are necessary for somebody listening perhaps to identify themselves to be the money or even just things that you think are necessary they got to have in their toolbox? I certainly piggyback on what Justin's saying in regards to no like, and trust. And one of the things that has worked for me really successfully is as a salesperson, if you will, when raising capital, you feel much more confident in what you're selling if you truly believe in the product that you're selling. And granted, it's not door-to-door -door sales, but our product is this particular multifamily property in which we are raising capital for. And I know that we have done a great job on researching the market. I know that we've done a great job on underwriting the deal. I know that we've done a great job with our asset manager in putting a business model together and how we're going to do the renovation and so on and so forth. So when I sell breaking rocks in the hot sun, like Matt talks about, I'm selling our team. I'm selling, this is how we've identified the market. This is our business plan. This is how we underwrite the deal. This is how it's going to benefit you. I'm selling the entire package. So I have felt that probably the most successful, I'm not just selling, here's what your IRR return is going to be, or this is what your cash on cash return is going to be. I'm selling an entire package that we have done the entire analysis for the nuts, if you will, as to why this is probably one of the most attractive investments that you're going to be able to go ahead and invest in. And that's what I think we pitch really, really strong on our webinars which is why all of us show up on the webinars, not just the money person who's out there raising the money. When we do our webinars, all of us are on the webinars because we want to go ahead and show investors that there is a method behind the madness, if you will, that we've done the work on how we've identified the market. What's our business plan for managing this property? This is how we underwrote the property. Put that together. Now you can start talking about returns. That comes down to trust for the whole team. They need to trust the whole team, not just the lead capital raiser is going to do right by them. That's right. 100%.
Guys, so just to bring it home, if you are considering yourself to be the money on a real estate team of your own, or building a new real estate team with yourself as the center of the money, the bit what I want to, the guys want to give is make sure you're prepared to really just understand how marketing works. Folks I look up to, like Joe Fairless, came from a marketing world and was able to use a lot of his marketing expertise to really build a phenomenal brand and use that to raise tons and tons of capital for his deal. So if you have a background in marketing or a background in sales or a background in just building a brand that's designed to attract eyeballs and attract attention, let's say, from the market, then maybe you're a good money person. Social media is a big help. It's not necessary though, but it, it is a place that a lot of people use to get attention for their companies. So all these things are things that flow into being a good capital raiser slash money provider for your opportunities. The biggest mistake I see people make as well is making their business all about raising money. There are folks out there that are just capital raisers. You're not going to really be able to control all the things that your investors are tied to if you don't have a attachment to a good asset management team, a good underwriting team, a good deal finding team. So money is one fourth of the equation. It is 25%. Don't make it a hundred percent. Don't make your business all about raising money for other people's stuff. You also need operations and everything else that's going to really drive to success. And it's better for you to be controlling and owning those things. If you're raising money for other people's deals, that's awesome. It's a great way to give your legs underneath you. And as long as you've got a board seat or some involvement in that company, it's okay to do it that way, but you want to eventually evolve. If you want to really own a larger and larger business, you want to evolve to the point where you are controlling and partnered long-term with those that are implementing and manifesting the success for your investors. Bringing that over to you, Justin, that's really your turf, right? Without good asset management, all you have is potential energy. You got a deal, you got a good business plan, and you got plenty of money, but all that, as we've seen, could turn into nothing. It is the implementation side that really drives that success. And that is the hammer. Justin, take us through what it's necessary for somebody listening to decide that they're a good hammer, that they could be a good hammer for the operations that they're building themselves. Yeah, look, when we're talking about doing deals, finding the deal, underwriting the deal, raising money, these all happen over a period of months. But if you're going to buy a property, you're likely going to own it for years. So the hammer is involved in most of the duration of ownership of this asset. So the hammer is the person that is getting the business plan done, implementing the plan, the execution person. If you are the implementer, if you are the integrator, if you are the project manager, if you like to manage construction projects, all these things could mean that you are the hammer. I like to say that I organize people and resources to get things done. So that could mean hiring the best people. That could mean running KPIs. It could mean relating with contractors. It could mean sitting down with a box of receipts to get the information I need. Whatever it takes to get the thing done is what the hammer is going to do. And you know if you're a hammer or not, right? So some people are going to feel much more better about any of the other three roles. But if you're a hammer, you tend to know, right? Because you're the person that likes to jump in, get your hands dirty. And that doesn't mean you have to swing the hammer literally, but it does mean that you are controlling the flow of money and looking at the project plan, the timeline, making sure that we're staying on budget and pushing and driving everybody forward to make sure that that plan is coming into realization and that we're actually getting things done. So that's what the hammer does. Many hammers that I've seen become great hammers in, in multifamily operations, perhaps 
used to swing a hammer or used to run a construction company. We've talked to several folks that are super successful hammers in their multifamily teams that were contractors, that were GCs, that were property inspectors, whatever it is, that understand the implementation side of the real estate business. If you understand the implementation side of the real estate business, or if you're also willing to go toe-to-toe with a contractor, property manager, vendor, for the sake of advancing the business plan, if you're willing to have those conversations, you, listener, could perhaps be a good hammer for a good multifamily team that you're building yourself. So, guys, I think we've covered it. Let's bring it all home. Or actually, you know what, Justin, before I bring it all home here, right? What is the biggest mistake you've seen someone that's a rising hammer on a multifamily team make? Real quick, so I want to make sure that we cover some don't do's for people to bring home here. I think the biggest mistake that people who are a hammer make is thinking that they have to do everything themselves. They don't delegate. Mm. They don't bring in the experts on the team. By hiring great contractors, hiring great property managers, great insurance agents and mortgage brokers, you can surround yourself with an A-plus team. The hammer doesn't have to be the one doing. The hammer is the coordinator. The hammer is bringing this collection of excellent A-plus people and getting them all to march to the same beat and head in the same direction. So the biggest mistake that rising hammers make is thinking they have to do it all their own without consulting and bringing in other experts. So. Definitely, it's a team sport, as we've talked about today, but that team extends deeper and wider than even the partner level that we've talked about. And so surrounding yourself with excellent people is going to make you successful. And Justin, I know in our earlier years of business, that is something that you had to deal with and a part of yourself that you had to give up. And I want to submit to anybody listening as well that if you are a hammer now, if you're identifying yourself to be this, that something you might have to deal with is that desire, as Justin said, to do it all yourself. There's other seats in the multifamily team that are very great delegators. I try and delegate everything, right? As Justin and Irving can testify to, right? Um, But the hammer is someone who might naturally want to do it all on their own. So if that's you, that is another big mistake that you can make as a hammer. You don't have to do it all. You need to lead it all. You need to drive it all. But you don't necessarily need to do everything. And so something that a hammer needs to learn how to do to be effective and to build a big business is to – Delegate and hold people accountable. Use things from the book Traction, like KPI technology, those kinds of things, to really drive success and grow. Because if it's all on your shoulders, then the business can only be as wide as your shoulders are. That's it. You can't grow and scale any bigger than about this right here. The hammer has to fight that every day because the hammer got great at being a hammer by doing and just getting in there and getting it done. So it is a natural evolution and it is a difficult evolution, but to start to bring in great people and delegate and lead, as you said. So definitely my fellow hammers out there, watch out for that and keep that in mind as you're growing your business. Absolutely. So guys, just sum it all up. Four components of a multifamily team, the core four, the four superpowers are the hunter, those that find the deal, the brain, those that take that deal and produce a business plan with it, the money, the person that's going to go into their built-in network and then run the marketing arm to attract money, equity, and dollars relationships to the deal to fund that deal and get it to closing, and then also to maintain relationships with those equity providers over time so they know how their money's doing. Then you've got the hammer, those that are going to take the deal, the plan, and the money and turn it into reality. They're going to take all those things and drive it home. All those things are necessary, and we've seen too many multifamily teams that are trying to grow, trying to build up, that are missing 
one of those four components. If you're missing one of those four components, you're certainly not going to scale. You're not going to 10X as we have been able to do at DeRosa over a short period of time. And you're not going to have a long-term sustainable business. So that's what I want to carry forward to you guys. But here's the thing. We got some good news for you. This is not a one podcast conversation. We've been lucky enough that we're going to be able to take this conversation of how to scale, how to 10X a multifamily company as we have at DeRosa, and we're going to be having a 10-episode conversation with you guys here, best ever audience, and we're going to have the best ever conversation with you guys about how to 10X your multifamily business. Justin and Irving are going to come back and join us for more episodes, as will other DeRosa team members, to come and talk about the deep dive components of the four things we talked about today and also many, many new things, how to find deals in this crazy market we're looking at, how to find deals, how to drive deals to fruition, how to underwrite when and how to sell when it's time to sell your asset and how to build a long, deep team of people to help you scale and grow. This is going to be a super exciting conversation. Justin and Irving, I'm super grateful to have you alongside us. What's one big thing you hope the listeners here of, of this 10 episode series bring home that they can carry forward for their businesses. Justin, what do you got? Well, look, we put this 10 week thing together for you guys because this is our experience and we've gone through this and we are still doing it and working every day on our business. So I hope that they see the authenticity because we don't know anything else. We know what we've done, how we built our company, everything we've talked about yeah. today on the different roles on the team comes from our experience, come from years of frustration and butting up against having the wrong people on the team and the struggles there and, and evolution that we've gone through. And so I think that the people will get a true understanding of what we went through, see some glimpses in how they can apply that to their business. We want to break this down for you folks so that wherever you are in your business, if you're just starting or you've already got something going and you're looking to grow and accelerate it, that you can take some of the lessons that we've learned and apply them to your business. So we are here for you and hope that we're sharing our authentic story for you and you can take something positive out. Absolutely. We are operators at heart. We are operators at our core of our business. And we're just offering up something to teach people through this podcast about how we do what we do and how we did it and how we grew so quickly. Arabe, what do you got? What's one key component you want people to take home through this series? Not to quit, not to give up, to keep going and pushing through. And I think the three of us collectively say, what did we wish we had when we got started in our own real estate journeys? And we wish we had the roadmap. We wish that we had the education. So much of it is, I know I had just jumped into the deep end of the pool. Justin had jumped into the deep end of the pool and so did Matt and Liz. But if you can jump in and have some direction and you can have a roadmap, if you will, it makes your journey that much more smoother, that much more understandable. So you can start with that first deal and then obviously grow and scale from there. And that's what this entire story is about for us, how we were able to put it together. We found our roadmap and we just continue to do it. Like Justin said, bumps along the way as anything else, but you learn from those. So I would tell you folks, stick with it, but look at that roadmap and put yours together Stay confident. That's and awesome. The way you want guys, phenomenal conversation today. Really, really grateful for you guys and for you guys spending the time with me and with the audience today. Audience, if you guys want to hear more about the Core 4 Method and everything that we had talked about today, go to derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A, derosagroup.com forward slash best ever. And there are lots of free resources there you guys can learn from, including a phenomenal market hunter tool. If you guys want to pick a market, you guys want to drill into a market, as Irve talked about, and we're going to be talking about this further in a future episode, but 
Urbe has developed a tool you guys can use to pick a market and determine if that market meets the parameters that you need it to meet to determine to make sure it's a market you want to go and do lots and lots of deals in. That is at that website, along with many other free resources and ways that you guys can hear more about this method we talked about today. So that is derosagroup.com forward slash best ever. Justin and Irving, thank you guys for spending the time today. I look forward to doing more episodes on this conversation with you guys in the future. Can't wait. Thanks a lot. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.